The text for this afternoon is also taken from Nehemiah 4. And we'll be reading in particular from Nehemiah 4, verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So far the reading. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Psalm 127, in the psalm which we just sung, we read the words, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. These words would have been especially meaningful for Nehemiah. Especially the second half of this verse, the Lord guarding the city would have been significant for him in this time. Why? Well, let's take a look at verse 7 for a moment. Nehemiah 4, verse 7. There we read, it happened when, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the wall of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. So to the north, you have the people of Samaria under the rulership of Sanballat. To the east, you have Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south, you have the combined nations which formed the Arab state, on, which was under Persian rule. And then to the west, you have the conquered Philistines under their new Persian provincial capital, Ashdod. They were the Ashdodites. The Jews were surrounded. There was terror on every side. Now, from our perspective, the Jews started off with a lot of hope, so much potential. We were excited to see them step up to the task of rebuilding. But what we need to realize is that it may not have come across that way for the people of Judah themselves at this point in time. They are just starting to obey. And the potential they see does lead to enthusiasm. But they are in part building off of their emotional momentum given to them by Nehemiah's success. However, they themselves haven't followed him on his four-month journey of crying out to the Lord, depending on him and receiving his answer. And now, just as they are beginning to be faithful, just as they have committed themselves to obedience to the Lord, their obedient work is threatened. Have you ever had this? That you just began to commit yourself to obedience to the Lord in a new area of your life. That you just began to submit to Him and suddenly it feels like you're being attacked. It feels like you're being threatened. It can be a very discouraging time. 
And in the case of the Jews, first the opposition comes in the form of mockery. We have Sanballat saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that have been burned? Tobiah, the Ammonite official, says, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he'll break it down. Next, as the building continues, the opposition comes in the form of a conspiracy between the coalition of the four surrounding nations, a conspiracy which threatens attack. And finally, the opposition that they see arises from within. The Jews who heard of the threats are spreading rumors. The strength of the laborers is failing because of this. And the Jews from the surrounding towns are saying over and over again, from whatever place you turn, they'll be upon us. There is fear in the air. Fear so strong that you can almost taste it. It is in this hopeless situation that the men of Judah are called into battle formation. Goldsmiths, priests, merchants, perfumers, leaders of districts, everyone who is working on the wall in chapter four, and whoever else they can muster is called to gather in one place. They are put into family groups and then set behind the weakest defenses of the wall with their swords and spears and bows. And in the power of the Lord, Nehemiah looks to them, arises, and speaks, saying, Do not be afraid. And so, brothers and sisters, we come to the theme of our passage for today. Through Nehemiah, the Lord calls his people to defense with the words, Do not be afraid. We'll see, first of all, how to call to remembrance, and second, a call to action. Today in the world, you'll find that people love calls to arms. They love calls to war. Calls to stand in the face of overwhelming odds. At least when they're looking at it from the outside, they love them. There's something in a pre-battle speech that stirs the hearts of men and gives them courage. Even when reading about them, we feel a shot of adrenaline that gets our hearts racing. In history, we read about a famous speech by Winston Churchill to the demoralized population of England. He says, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago, and to many countries, it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished. Very different is the mood today. Britain's, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching and no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. Rousing words, aren't they? A rousing speech. You would think that this would be the opportunity for Nehemiah to rise up, 
and to start speaking in this way. Never give in. Never give up. Never give in except to the convictions of honor and good sense. Hold to your honor. Hold to your pride. You are people of Judah. And yet, this is not the tactic that he takes. He doesn't make his people focus on these convictions. He does not primarily call them to fight for what they hold dear. Instead, he calls them on them not to fear on the basis of one thing. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Does this sound somewhat familiar? Not too long ago, in chapter 1, we saw this phrase flipped around on its head. Remember, O Lord, O Yahweh, the covenant God, remember your promises. Nehemiah there asked God to remember on the basis of his own faithfulness and the relationship that he had established that if the people of God repented and turned to him, he would gather them home. Nehemiah recognized his own great sin, his own guilt. He recognized that he's not coming before a God that can be manipulated into doing the right thing by giving money or saying nice things to those around us. That God's hand can't be forced, that he is far above us in majesty and power, that he is the great and awesome God. Instead, he directed the attention to the personal relationship that God has with his people. He was pointing out that God is not just the God who is in control of the universe, but that he has drawn himself into a special relationship with his people. And in fact, it is only on this basis that his people are able to draw near to him at all. That is what he was doing when he said, Remember, O Lord, remember, O Yahweh. These words were a recognition that God himself had taken the first step, that he had crossed the divide, that he had allowed his people to draw near by purifying them through covenant ceremonies. And it's only by his mercy that we can relate to him. And now Nehemiah is calling the people of Israel to remember. He sees that God has already taken this first step. And now he is calling on them to reflect on who that great and awesome God is. And just as the name Yahweh is significant in directing our attention to the fact that God has a relationship with his people, the other name for Lord that is used here in connection with the word remember is also significant. And that is the name Adonai. The name Adonai proclaims divine authority. This is the name Adonai, the name that proclaimed divine authority that the people were to remember when their world seemed to be spiraling out of control, when their situation seemed without hope, and when circumstances or people were just too overwhelming. Nehemiah was directing the people to the very same place that he himself turned when things seemed too much. He was directing them to the God who had authority to the God who has authority, and to the God who is in control. We see him turning to God as the one who is in ultimate control in the previous chapters, and we see that in his prayers in this very chapter that we're looking at today as well. 
he says in verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. And do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. And again, when the people are conspiring against them, we read in verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. What was Nehemiah doing here? He was directing the eyes of the people beyond themselves. He was directing the eyes of the people beyond what seemed to be an impossible situation. He was saying, things seem uncontrollable. But we have a Lord in heaven who is great and mighty. The Lord had remembered them and now they must remember him. He was saying, we have a Lord in heaven who is rock solidly in control, even when our world seems to be in chaos. He is bringing life to the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 61, verse 2. From the end of the earth I cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For it's this rock, this God, who is in control. Brothers and sisters, God is in control. He is the one who has divine authority. There is nothing that is so out of control that it's beyond his reach. There is nothing that is so senseless that he cannot make sense of it all. He is there watching over it. He is there in control. And for us, that should be enough. And when it is not enough, when because of sin, guilt, loss, sorrow, desperation, or a myriad of other reasons, we feel broken down and abandoned, let us cry out to God, lead me to you. Lead me to take comfort in your faithfulness, to take comfort in the assurance of the fact that you are Adonai, that you are the one with divine authority, you are the one in control. Lead me, O Lord, to the rock that is higher than I. And this leads us into our second point. One of the most remarkable verses in our passage can be found in Nehemiah 4, verse 9. Nehemiah 4, verse 9, we read, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Isn't that remarkable? We prayed to God and set a watch. We prayed a God, we prayed to God and set a watch. These days, we have a phrase that is floating around that you might see popping up on Facebook or popping up elsewhere. And this phrase says, let go and let God. Let go and let God. Now, there's a a lot of truth behind this phrase. There is. That it's 
a recognition that ultimately it's God who's in control. But this phrase does fall short. This phrase does fall short because as long as it's used as a recognition that God is in control, it's okay. But when it becomes an excuse to step back and say, I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm just going to let go and let God. I'll sit back and, well, I'll see what happens. If God wants change, then he'll begin to work it. But this passage that we have here provides us with a much different perspective. We prayed to God and then set a watch. I think that there's probably no stronger text for combining trust in the sovereignty of God and human responsibility than this text that we find here. We prayed to God and we set a watch. What Nehemiah does in our text here brings life to this mentality that he mentions in verse 9. The way he acts follows up on what he's done before. His speech is a reflection of what he has done, of the trust that he's shown. He gathers the people according to their families, places them on a war footing, and says, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. But he doesn't do so blindly. As we saw before, he does this in light of the fact that they have remembered who the Lord is. He says, remember who the Lord is. Trust. And then fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters. He calls on them to remember that their God is the one who drove the Canaanites out of the land before them. Their God is the one who made them victorious when all the odds were against them. Their God fought for them when they were fleeing for the Egypt when they were fleeing from the Egyptians and their God would continue to provide. And so they act. They don't act despite the fact that God is in control. This isn't Nehemiah saying, "All right, I'll remember who the Lord is." Uh, but just in case, I'll, I'll back that up and, you know, I'll take care of it myself. Just in case the Lord falls through. No, that's not what he's doing. He is not saying this. He's not acting despite the fact that God is in control. But they act because God is in control. They have taken to heart the saying that we find in Proverbs 21, verse 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory is of the Lord. Now, this is a point which is of utmost importance. And it's one which often begins to slip our minds today. We say, remember the Lord, the great and awesome God. But then we forget The second part, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. We are in a battle. We are in a war. We are in an ongoing spiritual struggle in which we do acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but sometimes 
sometimes we forget the need to make war. And not only the need to make war, but the need to move to the most vulnerable points of defense in our lives. We forget to cut out what tempts us most, to shore up and build up what has become weak, to protect the most precious parts of our lives. In the busyness of our day-to-day lives, we forget these things. And our passage draws us to the question of relationships in particular. That's the very thing that Nehemiah calls his people to fight for. And that's the very thing that God calls his people to fight for today as well. First of all, our relationship with God. And that's what we see with the attention that's drawn. Remember the Lord. That's the groundwork for our defense against the devil and his minions. And that's why it's absolutely necessary to spend time, to set time apart, to look to him in your day-to-day work. It doesn't have to be long, but as with any relationship, time is required as an investment. It's fuel for this spiritual battle. Finding strength in the Lord is food for your soul. Don't starve yourself. Second, our relationship with our spouse. This might come as a surprise to some, but it's true. This is the relationship which comprises the backbone of your interactions with many people on this earth. The home ought to be a safe haven where both of you can come before God and seek Him in your relationship. That you can seek Him as the center of your relationship. That you remember the Lord and then you fight for your relationship. Fight against the devil. A big part in creating this atmosphere is unity and devotions. However, this can be a difficult thing. There are often excuses that we bring up that say, oh, we're too busy for that. We're too busy for the second most important relationship on earth. We have to think very carefully before suggesting that. Another thing we hear is, we go to bed at different times. Well, that's a chance to go to bed, to do devotions before the early bird goes to bed and the night hawk can carry on. We're too tired. That is true. That is often the case. But you are also working to build up your spiritual partner for this spiritual battle, for this war that is raging around you that may require sacrifice on your part. It's true. Reading the Bible together, talking about it for a few minutes, and praying together, praying for each other, may require sacrifice. But living for God's kingdom does require sacrifice sometimes. We see this in Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4, verse 21, following. 
So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Meaning that they didn't take off their clothes. That would be taking off their outer garments in order that they could sleep. And just wearing their tunic underneath. But no, they just washed them and then put them back on again. So that they would always be ready. Our time together, battling together, doesn't need to be long. But it does need to exist. And then you will find that even in this relationship together, even in this earthly relationship where you are fighting for each other, then Christ's words in Matthew 6 will ring true. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first God. And he will rise to your defense in your relationship. Why do I stress this so much? When you're in a spiritual war, the devil will try to destroy that which makes you the strongest because it also makes you the most vulnerable. A husband and a wife presenting a united spiritual front will be able to withstand much, but a house that is ambivalent, a house that doesn't care, is easily divided, and a house that is divided against itself will fall. Make war. You may not think that the time that you have together is something you need to fight for, but it's a key refuge in your fight against the devil. There may be times when this is not possible. There may be seasons when it's difficult, that it's impossible to maintain this routine, and that's life. But make sure that these seasons are a departure from a routine and not the routine themselves. Maintain it. Build it. Fight for your spouses. And finally, fight for your children. Because that's usually the very next thing the devil goes for. The weakest and the most defenseless. And it's your job as husband and wife to protect your children to the best of your ability against the attacks of the devil. And the main way that you do this is by raising them up in the fear of the Lord. You can't fight their spiritual battles for them. But you can create the best atmosphere possible for them to fight. And you can do your best to equip them. Teach them to fear the Lord. Model for them how to seek the Lord. How to love Him. How to cherish a relationship with Him. Show them how much God means to you and what an impact it has on your work. What an impact it has on your ethic, your treatment of them, and your overall life. Let them know that you are fighting for them. And when you fall short, let them know that God is fighting for you. When you fall short, let them know that. And when you succeed, let them know that it is God who is fighting for you. For that is what it is. That's what we read in Nehemiah 4, verse 20. We read him saying, Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us.
That's the final thing that we always need to come back to. We always need to draw our attention to again. Because in ourselves, it's impossible to seek God, to place him first and foremost in our relationships. It's impossible to fight in the way that our God calls us to. And it's okay to recognize this. Because this is what drives us all the more to seek our general and king in this war. It drives us to flee to Christ. In his death and resurrection, he has obtained the final victory. We don't have a general who simply calls to us never to give up, but one who has fought and who has won the final victory. And when we come to him, though we cannot fight for ourselves, we have a more perfect champion who will fight for us, who will equip and strengthen us for the fight. Christ has obtained his spirit for us. When we turn to him, he fills us and gives us strength to do the impossible when we seek after him for this. To seek God in even our lowest times and the most broken relationships and to continually drive us to say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. In him, we can find this strength and the hope that he provides in this spiritual war. Because God is fighting for us. And because God is fighting for us, we can say, never give up. Never, never, never. Amen.